If you think you need expensive GPUs to get started with artificial intelligence, then think again. Use your existing Intel Xeon processors on Dell PowerEdge servers to get started today, with exciting AI use cases from finance to healthcare and more. Dell EMC and Intel are proud to sponsor the AI thought leaders on the Voices in AI podcast. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Today, I'm so excited. My guest is Amir Khosrowshahi. He is a VP and a CTO, the CTO of AI products over at Intel. He holds a bachelor's degree from Harvard in physics and math, a master's degree from Harvard in physics, and a PhD in computational neuroscience from UC Berkeley. Welcome to the show, Amir. Thank you. Thanks for uh, having me. I can't imagine someone better suited to talking about the kinds of things we talk on this show, because you've got a PhD in computational neuroscience. So start off by just telling us what is computational neuroscience? Um, so uh, neuroscience is, uh, is, a, is a field of study of the, of the brain, and it is a, mostly a biological, bi- biologically minded uh, um, field. And uh, of course, um, there are aspects of the brain that are computational and there's aspects of the brain that are opening up the skull and peering inside and sticking needles into areas and doing all sorts of different kinds of uh, experiments. Computational neuroscience is a combination of these two threads, the thread that there is a computer science statistics and machine learning and mathematical aspects to uh, intelligence. And then there's a biology where you are trying to make an attempt to map equations from machine learning to what is actually going on into the in, in the brain? I have a theory uh, which I may not be qualified to have, and and you certainly are. So I would love to know your thoughts on it. So I think it's very interesting that people are really good at getting trained with a sample size of one. You know, I can draw a made-up alien you've never seen before, and then I can show you a series of photographs and. Even if that alien's upside down, underwater, behind a tree, whatever, you can spot it. Further, I think it's very interesting that people are so good at transfer learning. I could, I could give you two objects like a trout swimming in a river and a, that same trout in a jar of formaldehyde in a laboratory. And I could ask you a series of questions. Do they weigh the same? Are they the same color? Are they, do they smell the same? Are they the same temperature? And you would instantly know. And, and was just, and yet, and likewise, one more thing that just to throw in that pot, you know, if you were to ask me if hitting your thumb with a hammer hurts, I would say yes. And then somebody would say, well, have you ever done it? And I'm like, yeah. And then they would say when, and it's like, I don't, I don't really remember. I didn't know I have. Uh, and so somehow we take data and throw it out and remember metadata. And yet the fact that a hammer hurts your thumb isn't stored in some little part of your brain that you could cut it out and somehow forget that. And so when I think of all of those things, it seems so different from computers to me, I kind of have a sense that human intelligence doesn't really tell us anything about how to build artificial intelligence. What do you say? Okay, that's a really, those are very deep questions. And actually each one of those items is a separate thread in the field of machine learning and artificial intelligence. There are uh, uh, lots of people working on things. So the first thing you mentioned, I think was one shot learning. You have, um, you see as something that's novel, from the first, the first time you see it, you recognize it as something that's singular and 
you retain that knowledge to then identify if it occurs again, such as uh, for a child, it would be like a chair. For you, it's potentially an alien. Uh, so um, how, do you, how do you learn from single examples? That's an open problem in machine learning and it's very actively studied because you want to be able to have a parsimonious uh, strategy for learning and the current ways that uh, it's a good problem to have the current ways that we're doing learning and for example in online services that sort photos and recognize objects and images it's very computationally wasteful and it's actually wasteful in usage of data you have to see many examples of chairs to have an understanding of a chair and it's actually not clear if you do actually have an understanding of a chair because the models that we have today for chairs, um, they do make mistakes. And when you look at the peer into where the mistakes are made, it seems like there is the, the machine learning model doesn't actually have an understanding of a chair. It doesn't have a, a, a semantic understanding of a scene or of a grammar or how the languages are translated. Uh, and we're noticing this, these efficiencies and we're trying to address them. You mentioned some other things uh, such as uh, how, do you, uh, how do you transfer knowledge from one domain to the next? Humans are very good at generalizing. You see an example of something in one uh, context, and it's amazing that you can extrapolate or transfer it to a completely different context. And that's also something that we're working on quite actively. And we have some initial success in that we can take a, a statistical model that was trained on one set of data, and then we can uh, then apply it to another set of data by kind of using that previous experience as a warm start and then uh, moving away from uh, that old old domain to the new domain. And this is also possible to do in continuous time. Much of the things we experience in the real world, they're not stationary and that the statistics change with time. And uh, we need to have models that can also change. It's for a human, it's, it's easy to do that. It's very good at uh, going from it's good at handling non-stationary statistics. So we, we need to build that into our models. We're cognizant and working on it. Uh, and then the other things you mentioned are that intuition is, is very difficult. It's potentially one of the most difficult things um, for us to translate from human intelligence to machines. And uh, remembering things and having a kind of a hazy idea of of being, having done something bad to yourself with a hammer, that I actually am not really sure where that falls in into the various subdomains of machine learning. So, but the but the basic so you, your your contention is no, uh, those are hot topics in machine learning and and they will likely inform it. But do we actually have evidence of that? Like, do we think that those problems are inherently solvable in computers? Um, so this is a contentious topic. There's, of course, naysayers that say that um, we can't, we, um, we're, we're not going to be able to do these things for quite a long time. And there are the people who are, uh, who, who say we are, we are addressing them and it's a continuum. It's not a binary event that we eventually have intuition in artificial intelligence systems that will, it will get better and better over time. And we have um, we have people working on these problems, and they're making incremental improvements on doing one-shot learning, having intuition, um, having uh, more human-like uh, forms of intelligence um, embedded in them. It's just the progress is 
slow and it's a very challenging problem and it may take decades, it may take years. Uh, so I, I'm on the, definitely on the optimistic side that we, we are on a path towards uh, understanding these, uh, these human abilities better and how to translate them to machines. And um, it's, it's happening and people are working on them. And it's, uh, it's, these are empirical questions that you have to try things, they fail. And it's okay that it's a contentious thing because it keeps, it keeps uh, this goal in mind for people that we're actually trying to move for some part of the field towards uh, this goal. Well, one more kind of example, because uh, you're familiar with uh, the nematode worm and the open worm project. I, I am vaguely familiar with it as a to, neuroscientist. To set, right. To set it up. Sometimes I think people have a sense that we don't understand our brains because, well, there are 100 billion neurons. But it turns out there's this worm, the nematode worm, a little bitty, tiny fella, only has 302 neurons in his brain. And there have been these people for like 20 years who, who take this reductionist view that I think most people do, which is let's figure out how a neuron works. And then let's, we can, in theory, then for a model, 302 of them, and we can make something that behaves in computer memory like a nematode worm. And yet, 20 years in, there's still not even consensus among people working on the project if it is even possible. Does that tell you, does that suggest anything to you? Um, yes. So this is, a, this is actually a useful model. Uh, the fact that the nematode, there's actually many examples, and I work in the domain of vision, and maybe I can give you another example just, again, to... Uh, emphasize what you pointed out. So the nematode worm has under order of 300 neurons. Uh, it is actually a little bit uh, different than uh, mammalian brains in that it's the connections are mostly analog. They're not spiking, but that's just a detail. Yeah, so we have exhaustively studied the nematode worm, much as we've studied the Drosophila in the context of genetics. And uh, there is a lot of things about the nematode worm we don't understand that maybe it's at the behavioral level, maybe it's at the uh, bi biology level, maybe it's at the microbiology level, genetic expression. How can this organism perform its various wiggling behaviors and uh, with just small, such a small amount of comput computational machinery, how are the synapses participating in uh, activating certain kind of behaviors? How is memory stored? Yeah, we're still, it's, that's right, we're still uh, working on uh, this. So uh, when you do a reductionist approach with any aspect of biology, almost invariably anywhere you look, the complexity is, uh, is staggering and overwhelming. And then you're wondering uh, how it's not tractable. So uh, the way that you can, one approach to making it tractable is to um, abstract the worm and think about it's an organism and it's trying to achieve certain goals. It's trying to procreate. It's trying to eat. It's trying to keep from getting eaten by birds, it's trying to conserve energy, and so forth and so on, you can actually make, uh, state these things uh, mathematically, uh, and then you can, um, then you can abstract these ideas of survival and behavior into things that are tractable. And that's one approach that we've taken uh, in, the, in vision, for example, understanding mammalian vision, if you peer into a mammalian retina, it is uh, incredibly intricate, complicated. It has uh, lots of different kinds of neurons. New neurons are being discovered every, um, every month, and it's a paper in nature. And 
it's very vascularized. If you close your eyes, if you take a picture of your head at night, um, the the retina, the eye eyeballs stand out because it's very uh, physiologically active. There's many blood vessels, the choriocapillaris that it, it is in the back of your eye. It's a really intricate system, and when you look at it at a very um, very fine grain, then it seems almost intractable to uh, figure out how it works, why it works, why was it designed that way, why are the blood vessels on top of the the photosensing uh, elements. But if you actually, so in vision, it's a little bit, maybe um, I'm not so familiar what a worm does during its day, but vision is a little bit more tangible for me because we have cameras and you take a picture and there's a bunch of stuff in the, in the image. And then you, you can do things like segment image, recognize objects, understanding, understand the gist of the image. Are you at a beach? Are you in a mountain? Um, and potentially there's some action or goal implied in the image. Uh, at that level, you can start thinking, okay, what is the organism trying to do with this image? It's trying to find objects. It's trying to navigate. Then I think it becomes tract tractable. You can separate yourself out of all the intricate detail of the biology, and you can solve the high-level problem. And, I sh and that has been successful for us. And I can give you examples where uh, you can state the following, that the brain is in some way optimized to the statistics of the world, and that um, there is manifestations of that in the biology when you record from these neurons. And that's actually uh, uh, a, a great way to understand all the complexity. I'm not sure if I, it's a very difficult concept to convey. We can talk about it at uh, more length, but. Well, it sounds ways. like you're saying, <clears throat> uh, I need to cook steak, and the only microwave I know is broken. And I can't figure out how it works, but I know how to build a fire and I'll just build a fire and cook the steak. Like we won't understand how the brain works, but we will just try to duplicate its functionality. Did I hear you right? Yes. So, uh, I mean, we're, we want to make progress in science and you don't want to state problems that, uh, you want to break problems down and you don't want to figure out how the brain works uh, all, all at once, but you can break it down in certain ways. And one way to do that is to understand, to take as given and it's true that the brain is optimized to understand the statistics of the world. And um, that, would, that you can mathemat mathematically, machine learning wise, define these things uh, semi-rigorously and in a tractable fashion. And then you can start peering into the brain to see, oh, is this theory right? Is this hypothesis right? Is it actually tuned to the statistics of the world or is it not? And in what way? And how does it help the organism? That's how we've been teasing out uh, how vision works in mammals. Um, for example, early, we're in the early stages. So there's a question I often ask people on the show. And they, I, I, just my rule of my vague memory is that people come down about half and half on this question, which is narrow AI, which is what we know how to build, Right now, we can build a computer to play chess. We can build a computer to spot spam. And then the idea of a general intelligence, an, an, an AI that's as versatile and creative and all of that as a human. Are those the same types of technology? Or put another way, does narrow AI progressively just get better and better and better and better and better until one day it's general? Or have we like not even started building a general AI? Like That's something completely other. Well, these are tough questions. Uh, so 
my working definition of narrow AI, and I am working very actively in this domain, so it is quite narrow. We're making uh, artificial intelligence that can be used in products that you use in your phone and at your in your house, at, at your place of work, on a website. Uh, and um, how I define it, uh, artificial intelligence in this setting is any system that can learn and infer. So, um, and this, these are these are rigorous terms. They're in the context of statistical models. So, uh, there is stuff you observe in the world or in the social media graphs or in web page clicks. Some of it is tangible and human humanly understandable, like vision. Some of it is not. Uh, the Twitter feeds and connections and uh, or communications over a, a telecommunications network. These are not. Uh, these have certain statistics and they're co complicated and uh, you can build models, statistical models of these, uh, of this data. And that's the learning part. And then the inference is given that you have a model, hopefully it's good enough. It's never gonna be exactly faithful to the underlying potentially, but you can start doing inferences. So if you have a population of people, what's the average height of the population of the people? What's the maximum height? what's the uh, or sub inferences among the genders what is the height of the males what's the height of the females for age and so forth so given a given a, a statistical model that's faithful enough representing the data you do inference and uh, this is a useful thing so uh, that's that's the narrow ai general ai is actually kind of hard to define that's maybe part of the difficulty in attacking it and there are people who are working on this uh, very actively, one entity is Google DeepMind. Their goal, a stated goal, is to solve this problem first and then use the solution to do great things for humanity. To solve every other problem. To solve every other problem. So I don't know, uh, honestly, so uh, uh, maybe we should spend some time defining the difference. You asked, that was your question. Um, but I told you uh, the, the narrow one, and I guess the other thing is not that. Maybe that would be my working definition of general AI. Um, but I'm just, I'm a little bit worried that that's kind of a distraction, that we're trying to go toward these, this very lofty, high-minded goal, um, whether or not we're going to use it to solve any, uh, every other problem. Just the pursuit itself is per perhaps a distraction that there's quite a lot of things. The narrow AI can be extended quite a lot, and we can have incre incremental improvements. You can have a better voice recognition system. And this is this is very worthwhile, and I'm not sure when it, there's a phase transition to general AI-like things, but um, it's just I feel like um, it's not my focus, and I feel there's a lot of uh, great things to come out of and uh, just pushing narrow AI as far as we can go, and we're nowhere near general intelligence, so I'm not sure where that boundary is going to be again, decades or years, and uh, that's what I'm spending my time on. Right. But in all fairness, 99 cents of every dollar spent on AI is on narrow AI. I mean, like you have to look long and hard to find people that are actually working. I mean, all the venture money that gets raised, that goes to solve real world problems. So are you, when you say it's a distraction, do you mean things like this show or bombastic books about it's going to Terminator scenarios and all of that? Or do you think it's actually a distraction from like funds and engineers and all of that that's really oh yeah it's the former it's there's a lot of discussion about general intelligence 
and uh, when are we going to get there? When are computers going to be sentient? And when are they going to start uh, er eradicating humanity? And, and just these things are uh, a distraction. Um, but so how do I phrase this? When you're immersed in this domain and you're solving problems on a daily basis, whether they're for in an academic research kind of setting or in a business setting, it is quite a humbling experience. It's quite difficult to do anything. And I give you, there's many examples, but one of them that I commonly give is that uh, my experience building robots. So if you buy a bunch of stuff uh, off of Amazon and you assemble it into a you know, relatively cheap robot with Raspberry Pi, one of the first tasks you want to do with this agent is to get it to go somewhere. And you'll quickly find out that it's actually really hard to get a robot to go straight. So um, I experienced this myself. I'm like, wait a minute, how is this? How can this be so hard? The different wheels, they're commodity um, cheap wheels. They have different motors. They're, they slip. They potentially <coughs> have other kinds of non-precise properties. And it's actually quite hard to get a robot to go straight. So this was a very good learning lesson for me that it's quite hard in practice to make systems work. And there's quite a lot of learnings in uh, making, trying to get these things to work. And uh, these are things that are very helpful to people. You can build robots that are work in a factory that can do pick and place, but they can't walk around and interact with humans and uh, like in the science fiction. We're so far away from that, that I feel it's a distraction in that sense. But let's try to figure out these, these problems first, and then we can discuss about uh, uh, larger, um, bigger things. But there are, there are elements of public policy, and so the, the larger issues... So I've also experienced this uh, in, in neuroscience, and this is actually my history, my path to where I am today, is partly struggling with this question of, should we try to understand the brain uh, first, and then that would... Uh, you can go from there to anywhere. And I decided that was actually a very difficult task. And we, I went to building computers and trying to build computers that are intelligent and then potentially going back to neuroscience and the brain in the future and really understanding the nature of intelligence and how to replicate it in, in a fully art, a fully intelligent uh, machine. So, very, you know, uh, we've, we've talked about, you and I have, have talked about like, what is intelligence and what is artificial intelligence? And it's the most common question I ask on the show. But I want to ask you a variant of it, which is why do we have so much trouble defining intelligence? Mm, okay. This is something I've asked myself. Uh, I, I guess I would hazard a really uh, crazy answer that uh, potentially it's, it's fundamentally undecidable. Uh, and I, I think I mean this in the sense of... Um, the book by Douglas Hofstad or Gödel Eschenbach. He wrote this uh, kind of singular book about the nature of intelligence, computation, what it has to do with math and uh, music and other domains. And there is the central theme of this book is that there is this kind of circularity to intelligence that is not a flaw, but it's an inherent deficiency. That's some kind of deficiency in any formal system. So let me just state it. So Gödel theorem states that in any uh, sufficiently powerful and expressive form of propositional logic, a logical system with axioms, that there are undecidable statements. You can state things in, this, in these logical systems that you can't prove true or false. 
and has been conjectured that some mathematical hypotheses, conjectures, and so forth are potentially fall into these undecidable propositions. So uh, that's a little bit far afield, but if you kind of uh, abstract out this, this uh, thesis, that in any kind of complicated system, if you kind of try to peer inside, if the system tries to peer inside itself, that potentially there's a there's going to be an inconsistency that's it's undecidable, and maybe a human trying to understand itself is also of this paradoxical nature. I, I'm not suggesting that it's uh, impossible, but I think that's part of the reason why it's hard that there is this uh, circular nature about a human trying to understand its own brain that is potentially a large part of the intractability. That's a pretty crazy idea, but I hope that made sense. No, no, that that, that does. I, and I love the, the circular nature of that book because the last sentence of the book is identical to the first sentence. So it, it, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I have circles. it here in my uh, office. <laughs> oh, no, I hope, you, uh, I hope I'm right. That's what I remember <laughs> from reading it. I was like, wait a minute, it starts over again. Right. It's a, it's a pretty uh, miraculous book. And it's uh, interesting uh, that this, you know, just bringing this up, Douglas Hofstadter had a kind of an interesting history with uh, the history of AI. He's, he wrote this book. It was an incredible achievement. It got me really interested in, in artificial intelligence. That's where I started. I didn't quite understand the book. I had to read it several times to uh, get a better grasp. I'm still not sure if I fully understand it. But then he kind of disappeared for uh, a long time. And he has uh, changed his message. Uh, he talks, talks about analogies and so forth and so on, but he's still kind of uh, on the side. And the dominant form of AI today is statistical. And he is more, much more on the uh, propositional logic, grammars and so forth side. And I guess a question I have for myself is, this has been going on for a while that we swing from one extreme to another. And I'm wondering when we're gonna start going back and as a researcher in this domain and someone in the business, I have to be mindful of this because this shift can have large implications. That we push statistics to a certain limit and it seems like we're kind of there. And now we're going to swing back in the other domain where we have to build expert systems and grammars and so forth and so on. So um, you didn't ask this question, but it's something that's on my mind. And it's repeated. Skinner, Chomsky... Norvig wrote a really nice essay about this, on, and he has it on his website, Peter Norvig at Google, um, and it keeps recurring, and I think I'm just wondering when it's going to happen again. Well, I'm only going to ask you one more general, artificial general intelligence question, then we'll put the rest of the time towards other topics. But I okay. do want to put this one last one to you, which is, is it possible, possible that a general intelligence is literally impossible to build like not it's going to happen in 500 years like it cannot be built and for any reason that that doesn't resort to something like uh, something supernatural is it possible that we're a strong emergent that our intelligence is strong emergence or something that simply is not reducible to a series of components is it possible Hmm. I, I think it's highly unlikely. Um, yeah. Is it possible that we will never, that would be quite a amazing thing if it's that deep a problem. And it would be kind of interesting that you can't build an, art, um, an intelligence because maybe it's a property of the universe. I don't know. Maybe it's some grand impossibility that there's a, but I, I think it's unlikely. Well, I we think have, the art argument would be we don't understand our brains fair enough okay that might just be biology that we do but then we have these minds 
we have these abilities that we don't really know how you derive them from cells, like mm -hmm. a sense of humor. And then we have consciousness. We experience the world. We feel temperature, whereas a computer measures, measures it. We can feel warmth. And, and you have these three phenomenon you can't really... And the last one, consciousness, we don't even know how to pose that question scientifically, let alone answer it scientifically. Right. And so if all of a sudden the one thing in the universe we know has general intelligence has these properties that cannot even be asked scientifically right now, then isn't it, isn't it hubris to say it's definite that we can build one? Um, yeah, I, I, my personal, so this is a, I just an intuition question. I think it is actually a tractable problem that we are going to solve. And it's a, it's a good feeling to, it's good to feel very uneasy at any point in time that you, maybe you're, you can or not solve this problem. That means that you're kind of hitting the boundary of our current knowledge and that you're going to push beyond the boundary. If you're not that uneasy feeling, then you're probably not working hard enough. So uh, we understand uh, some things about biology, but as I said before, it's a very humbling experience. If you look at a jumping spider, uh, it's a, a type of spider that has on the order of uh, hundreds of thousands of neurons and has different uh, visual uh, components, different kinds of eyes, that little spider can perform a really remarkable set of behaviors that are intelligent. It can, uh, it can identify objects, it can navigate a 3D environment, it can stalk prey, it can mate. That already for me is, uh, is an intelligent entity and it's quite hard to understand. Uh, and characterize much like the nematode worm, and I think we, we are going to understand things like that. And I think that, and then we can start think, understanding things like mammals and rats and monkeys and and humans uh, with time. And we're we're I think it's kind of an inexorable pro progress. Consciousness, I actually don't know when that's going to happen. That is a, as you said, it's even hard to state what consciousness is. But it's actually a subfield of uh, neuroscience. And the person who got me into neuroscience, Christoph Koch, has written a book about this. And uh, it, is, it is progressing and people are thinking about it. Well, you're right. And, and he in particular, uh, I think he's fantastically interesting. And he, I, I interviewed him um, earlier this year and I got to ask him all my questions. And you're right. He is taking it like it is a scientific question that is quantifiable, you know, that uh, through IIT and and all of that, that it can be measured and so forth. So he, uh, he would, he would, I, I, not to put words in his mouth, but would certainly say that's, that's a computational kind of problem. So, yeah, I would agree with him, but he definitely knows more about it than I do. Um, yeah, he's, he was, he is brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Anyway, so I want to ask you, now let's talk about narrow AI, and I want to ask you things we should or shouldn't do with it. And I want to go back to the 60s and Weizenbaum and Eliza. So the setup is that this man, um, Weizenbaum, computer science guy, early wrote a chatbot in the 60s called Eliza. And it was a simple, like, psychology. You would, you would type, I'm having a bad day. It would say, why are you having a bad day? I'm having a bad day because of my mother. Why are you having a bad day because of your mother? Blah, 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 blah. blah. <laughs> yeah, I'm familiar with it. It's actually still in Emacs, the, the text editor. Fair it enough. Is, uh, if you type in meta X psychologist, I think that Eliza activates so, to it inside your editor. Wow. I did not know that. That's cool. So Weizenbaum though, 
I saw that people were kind of pouring their heart out to it. And they knew it was a machine. I mean, they knew it, but they still were like telling, and this deeply bothered him. And so he like unplugged it and turned against AI. And, and he said, you know, when the machine says, I understand, it's just lying to you. There's no I, and there's nothing that understands anything. So when it comes to those sorts of uses of AI, um, to provide emotional connections, maybe to, to lonely people or, or, or anything like that, which those sorts of problems that really would have deeply bothered Weizenbaum. Do you worry about those or are those a relic of another way of thinking? So let me just ask, what is the question? Whether or not, uh, when you're building a chatbot, it can, it can be very simplistic with a simple grammar and a simple... Are there knowledge. certain emotionally charged uses of AI that we shouldn't do because they're corrosive to the concept of humanity and therefore human rights and all of the rest? Wow. Okay. This is a great question. Actually, I've not thought about this at, at all. And uh, I just came back from a conference where there were people on a panel discussing building chatbots that people would even... Uh, so when you get up in the morning, one, one of the participants said, you don't want to spend your time, you know, you're not looking very eager to talk to a chatbot. And um, because it's just not human, and it's very easily discernible that it's not human. In the case of Eliza, maybe that it did fool some people who were under a lot of duress psychologically, and they, they had to anthropomorphize the system. Uh, but so I haven't actually thought about this. But yeah, I think it is a it is a pretty ethical, uh, strong ethical issue that if you're for example, Google recently announced a product that to me was really just pretty remarkable that you can call it and make, it, can make an appointment for you. I don't know the details, but it was discussed in the press. Well, shouldn't this agent disclose that it's when it's calling to make an appointment for you, should it disclose or not that it's uh, not a human? And I think this is a really uh, important question. And I think it should disclose that it's not a human, that there should be no confusion on uh, from the human interacting with a chatbot that is talking to an artificial agent. Um, yeah, I think it, that is a important, you're asking an important question. I think pretty fairly strongly that it should be transparent that you're not talking to a, another human. But even taking it one step further, um, you, you, you know, the desktop devices made by Amazon and Google. I can't, I have them both next to me and they're like, <laughs> Wake up if yep. I say their name. Um, yes. I you know, they speak too. in human voices, and I interrupt them all the time. And it, you know, stop. Uh, and you know, I see my kids do the same, and it's really rude. You would never do that to a person, but of course, it doesn't know. But the fact that it speaks in a human voice, likewise, if you really kind of pushed it, you made um, and a narrow AI, you know, helper that sits and talks to people and tries to carry on a conversation. It's rudimentary, but it's built to look like a person. When it breaks, you just throw it in the dumpster. I mean, are those sorts of things, when we build things that look and sound like people, the way we treat them, could that have like a corrosive effect? So even if I know that thing on my desk over there is just that thing, still I interrupt it. And then, you know, do I, do I subconsciously start transferring that to the rest of my life? Ooh, these are, okay, so again, this is something I haven't thought about very much. Uh, because I, I'm so immersed in this domain that I do 
subscribe to these devices and I buy them just so I can be familiar with them. But for someone who is not well-versed in computer science and AI and doesn't know about the technology, then I do feel like it, it could have a, a societal implication that if this, these products are pervasive and they, they're not human and they communicate in certain ways, that it could change the nature of how we communicate in general and it can actually be corrosive. I, could, I can't imagine that and that would be, uh, have to be addressed through education and uh, by the companies or just generally. As, as this technology evolves and becomes even more sophisticated, I think, I'm not sure if this problem will go away or become more likely it will become worse. And so uh, I would like to just make a general statement about these kinds of questions, these ethical questions, and there, there are, you ask very difficult ones. There are actually lots of low-hanging uh, fruit types of problems like transparency, bias, robustness, and so forth. What I've seen as encouraging is, I don't know the answers to these questions, but if you go now to a machine learning conference, like NIPS uh, is uh, the biggest machine learning conference in December, uh, many of the keynote speakers are outside of the domain. They're invited to come and talk to the machine learning researchers. And it's around topics like the one you suggested, or about the future of work, or about diversity, or about other things that are kind of large societal questions about the impacts of machine learning AI on society. So what's really encouraging is that this is happening, and that the, the various smart people who run these conferences who are professors or academics or work at uh, companies, that they are being good stewards of the technology and they're being very forward-looking and the, these questions are being addressed in this setting, whereas three or four years ago, that was not the case. I, I completely agree with that, by the way. I find that people who are in this industry have a real, almost to a person, have a real sense of the moment. And there have been other, other times in the past, like the Manhattan Project in the United States, and you read their contemporary letters and their discussions, and they, they talked about how will this be used and how can it be misused and That's how right. can we... Hmm. And, and I found that people in the AI world, they're, they're thinking about all of these questions that uh, I'm asking. And like you and like right. me, it's not surprising we don't have answers to them, right? I mean, they're, they're, I think a lot of the challenge, because I was about to ask you, you know, when I listen to your language, you talk about computers learning, inferring, understanding, and all of these seeing, knowing. And if you think about it, we know the computer doesn't understand it. It doesn't see anything. It doesn't infer. It doesn't learn. But to, we have to use those words because we don't even have a vocabulary for what it's doing, or it would be so cumbersome because it would be caught up in like statistical language about what learning actually is, you know, patterns. That's right. And, and but what happens is, so our, our very vocabulary in, in, in essence gives humanity to these devices far beyond uh, what they what they merit uh, on their own on their own uh, accord and so right. um, it's like our, our very language if I were to ask you you know does a computer understand something you, you we just have to like debate what that word understand means and 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 it's just like our entire debate is constrained by a language that was made of words that were only ever intended to apply to people or or higher higher mammals, and we're now having to figure out like what do we call these machines? And so I think it's normal that it's all 
confusing at this moment. Yeah, I mean, I'd say I would make, since we talked about uh, Douglas Offset, or he, he does think about this quite a bit, that uh, it's a system that's trying to understand itself from within. And that's somewhat, uh, that circularity is, is a challenge. You're using, we're communicating in a language that was intended for one thing, and we're co-opting it for describing things that are really not, computers do not see there. There's a photodiode connected to a bunch of transistors, and there's currents, and so forth and so on. You're right. So uh, I think if you're mindful of it, then that's great. And another way that I deal with it is you do actually make it into a mathematical or statistical construct. And then it's kind of, uh, it's on paper and it's out of this domain of using natural language to understand itself. That's a inherently circular. That I don't was- know if that's... Yeah, that was the original hope of AI. And, and I mean, they, this goes all the way back to Descartes, the, the hope that everything can be expressed mathematically. And, and it sounds like you try to express mathematically as much as you can, at least. Yes. Uh, uh, so uh, a, these are actually questions that I haven't considered since I was uh, a kid uh, exploring these ideas. Wow. That, uh, so that makes me feel awful. That. I'm asking you like fourth grade <laughs> questions. Okay. Uh, no, no, I mean, like, you know, it's, it's so no, I think maybe I've been so immersed in transistors and building chips and uh, parsing large, large amounts of data. I think maybe it's a good time for me to uh, step back and reflect as well. Uh, I've been mostly focused on the human side of computers and the consequences of technology and dual use technology, especially. These are things that everyone is mindful in my domain. Uh, so, but not so much these more fundamental questions, going back to Descartes and Others, I kind of stopped in the 30s. So with Turing and von Neumann, that's where my field really started of artificial intelligence. But you're right that it does go deeper and there's philosophical questions that are um, have been discussed for since, I guess, I don't know, before Aristotle. You know, I'm known to be an optimist and, and I wear, wear it proudly. <laughs> and yet I'm not naive. And I do know, like you, that these technologies can be misused. And when people ask me, like, what's the most perverse use of AI? Um, it seems to me that uh, that it relates to privacy. And specifically, we, you know, we make AI that can read lips. And that's a great thing, unless, of course, a totalitarian government uses it to record all conversation. We make facial recognition. That's a good thing, unless that same government uses it to match those words to those people. We have cell phones, and that's a good thing, and, but we can do speech to text. And now, and so the fact that in the past, we could all have some measure of privacy, because there's just so many of us, and so many phone calls, and so many of everything. But now, the very tools we're building for sifting through a gazillion medical journals can build profiles on, on people. And in some countries, we can address that through legislation. We can say, no, I'm not going to do that. But in other countries, doesn't this technology allow totalitarian governments to just really crank up their grip? Uh, okay, so um, this it's great you asked this question about privacy. So actually, privacy is uh, as our top focus in my group um, at Intel. How do how to do uh, machine learning with in with some certain guarantees of privacy? And of course, it's also in the news, and it's of great concern to. Uh, everyone, and I think my my uh, my coworker Casimir Wazinski uh, had a really good analogy. 
is that we're kind of poised, we're making progress in the direction from going from HTTP to HTTPS, to going from unsecure websites to secure websites. That's happened over time. And that, that analogy of now to make it more concrete, there are ways to do private machine learning. There's of course systems level things you can do to make data secure. So if I have health records or I have personal financial information that I don't want anyone to know, whether it's a totalitarian government or a, a teenage hacker, there are ways, there are different ways to do a machine learning with guarantees of privacy. And some of the terms are things like differential privacy is a statistical way of guaranteeing that you can't reverse engineer a query to a database or a statistical model. There is homomorphic encryption. There is federated learning, which is very pragmatic, but not potentially not as secure. So there, there are certain ways for um, us to build models that are more private. So that's one thing. The other thing is that privacy, of course, has uh, societal implications and public policy implications. And what's really reassuring is that I, a neuroscientist, who I'm not a public policy person, I just came back from a, a conference where it was entirely about public policy and I was immersed in a pool of people that included congressional staffers and people from various regulatory bodies and NGOs and so forth discussing exactly this topic. So that is happening, that's reassuring as well as the people who are, the researchers who are producing this technology, if a researcher produces a technology that's able to mimic Obama's image and speech, they, they do point out that this technology can be used nefariously and they're ahead of the game in terms of like saying, hey, I did this thing and I, don't, I know that it's gonna, it potentially could be used for uh, bad things, just be cognizant of it and I will be mindful of it too as this technology develops. So these are all. You're an optimist. I am also am an optimist in this regard. Well, what what I heard you just say though is, if we want to, we can uh, build privacy safeguards in place. My question is about all the the state actors that don't want to. Um, isn't is that not? You know, every technology that comes along in a way empowers privacy, empowers people, or empowers oppressors or, or not. I mean, you know, like you can, you can see how the tide kind of shifts. And, and if I think the internet is a great source of, of uh, new information, it makes it very hard to control information sources. And so I think that's an empowering technology, but are these technologies like artificial intelligence, speech recognition, and all of that, do those actually in a, in an adversarial country where the government and the, the people are not necessarily in sync. Does that empower the government more? Uh, so I think this is a something that applies to technology generally. So I mean, almost any technology is dual use, and this problem um, is also has manifested itself recently in my domain. And so I'm not sure how to exactly answer your question, but as I mentioned, it is it is a top topic of our research. So we want to build more private ways of doing machine learning. And I think that's a really pretty, it's, I think it's a great thing that we're investing so much in it because it will get, it will, you will reap benefits societally from, from this. I cannot stop an authoritarian regime from doing nefarious things. But if I create systems that can read lips only in certain contexts, I don't know how that would actually occur if you can 
obfuscate your lips. I'm sure there's ways, but if we can build systems that uh, are better machine learning systems, but also are, have built into them privacy and some ethical uh, uh, properties, some safeguards, then I think that's as good as we can do. I had a, a guest on the show put forth um, a, a kind of, I don't know, an interesting theory. Uh, he said that privacy is kind of this temporary fad that we went through. He used to live in these villages and you had 300 people and you know you lived in, with two generations of your family and uh, everybody knew everything about everybody. The mailman would you know say what, oh, he got a letter from... and. He song and then and or heard them and and all of all everything about you was known and this goes back say ten thousand years and then you briefly had this little period where the industrial revolution came along and people left their home and they went to the city and they got an apartment and they had money and they had this thing called privacy and and that it was really unusual and he believes that we're going back to the old ways where you're going to know everything about everybody. You're going to assume you have no privacy and that the Victorian morality will reemerge where you know all the dirt about somebody else, but it would be impolite to mention it. <laughs> uh, so what is your question? Do I think that so my question is, 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 is privacy a temporary fad that uh, we don't, that, that we're not going to care about in the future? Okay, um, so um, I'll attempt a couple of answers, and then I will, I'll have to check, to check to see myself if I made any sense. So there is a strong incentive for businesses to ensure privacy for their customers. So there is a there is a business use case. Um, you don't want you want people to use your service, and if you don't guarantee that they're going to be protected, then they're not going to use you. If you're a bank and you share information, banks do share information, as has been pointed out. If you do it too much, you're going to move to a different bank. You're going to move to a credit union or whatever. There are business incentives for doing the right thing. And, uh, and then there's a government regulation that is now being uh, – so GDPR is uh, – is a set of regulations for privacy that was recently enacted in Europe and that's now spreading around the world that kind of it, it's encoding some of our moral values and ethics into regulation that consumers have to be protected uh, in, in terms of privacy. And I think that's a, those are rules now and businesses are adopting these rules. They're modifying their behavior to make sure they comply. And I think, this will be a virtuous thing, not a negative thing, that they will see the benefits of protecting their customers. The customers will want to use their services more and trust them more, given that there's these guarantees. So I think that we're going to move not in the direction you're suggesting, dystopian future, a Victorian future, but uh, I think we will go in the other direction, uh, I hope, and it's going to be enabled by regulations and business incentives and potentially other things that will drive us to more private and also algorithmic improvements and more secure systems and more well thought out systems that will keep us more uh, secure and private. So one, one last question along these lines, let's say you killed somebody 
and you need help from somebody you trust implicitly, a best friend, a brother, a mother, what have you, to move the body. Now, clearly, <laughs> I, I stress this is hypothetical. Now, okay. clearly, if you're in the room with them and you whisper in their ear, I need you to help me move a body, you're, you're not worried about it, right? Would you ever, A, say that on a cell phone today, or B, put it in an email? Hmm, okay. Let's see. I mean, I would be very, if I do something really bad, like eat someone's chocolate, I would still be a little bit nervous. I don't have to kill someone to be panicked. So uh, let's remove the, the homicide from the equation. Okay. I think okay. I would be very, uh, I would, yeah, I think I would be nervous about either form of communication because I know how they can both be hacked. But right. of course, email versus email versus um, phone. Cell phone. Yeah. So I think the cell phone, I would naively think is more secure because there's no history of it. So you've given up having an expectation of privacy then. Whereas with the whisper, you're not worried about it at all. Right. I, I, you're right. At some level, these systems can be hacked. Uh -huh. I mean, my voice talking to my whisper can go out into space and some alien civilization can. Uh, right. But you're not really it. worried about that. You really would whisper it to somebody. I just ate that chocolate. I need to go out and get more. Right. So let yeah. me ask you one more question along these lines. I will, I will put forth a, um, a view that I actually hold and, um, I would like you to probably re rebut it. So you, you mentioned the recent changes in, in um, Europe and the, uh, the legislation that was passed. And one of the things in that is explainability, that if the AI makes a decision about you, like it denies you credit, you have a right to know why. And from my way of looking, it seems to me that if I sold pool cleaning supplies, and I called Google one day and said, when you Google pool cleaning supplies, Austin, I'm number four. My competitor is number three. Why are they three and I'm four? And Google would have to say, I have no idea. There's so many things that go, we're 50 billion web pages and you want us to explain the difference between three and four? It's like, it cannot be done. No human can do it. And if, in fact, it were ever legislated that everything has to be explainable or everything that affects you like that definitely would affect me has to be explainable that that is unquestionably a limit on the advancement of AI. Your response. Okay. So uh, on the issue of explainability or transparency of models and the issues you raise, uh, raise there is a little bit of a historical progression of our domain that's, uh, I just want to state it. So one of the things that we've been trying to do with AI models to make them relevant is to improve their performance. So we want to have vision models that can actually identify objects uh, in a, with high certainty. We have uh, things, chatbots and chat devices that are in our kitchens and, our, and around the house that can recognize our voice. We've been very focused on getting these things to be uh, relevant, that I talk to it and it understands me and it does it with high probability. So there's been a high uh, emphasis on performance of machine learning models, and that's been at the cost of other things. And one of those things is transparency and uh, explainability. And I think what's going is happening now is that in the process of building machine learning systems, 
the, the, the machine learning researcher has to understand what, it, what they're doing such that they can make bigger, better models. The model has to be explainable to the researcher and they have tools to do that. They have ways of peering inside the model, looking at the weights, much, much like a neuroscientist peers into a, a brain. And those things are uh, underdeveloped relative to performance and that it's actually rapidly becoming better and better. But there are ways to investigate a machine learning model to understand why you're number four and this other person is number three. And we're nowhere near, I, there's a lot of promise in this direction of building tools to understand models and also to build more explainable and transparent models. And this is a really difficult challenge because uh, if you ask uh, yourself, if you want an MRI machine that and a diagnostic set of software to identify potential tumors, do you want it to be explainable or do you want it to be high performance? And I think you would choose the latter. You would want it to, you don't care how it's doing it. You just want it to be really good. So there is a trade-off there and uh, we've sacrificed for performance. And I think we're gonna start catching up in explainability and transparency. And there's, I can tell you these are, these are, these are systems with numbers and matrices and operations and they're deterministic mostly and we can figure out how these things work and but if you look at humans and human behavior we're building ais uh, of various forms humans are extremely non-transparent and unexplainable they have these inherent biases and lots of uh they're quite mysterious so um i think if we're going to build ai systems the expectations should be that it should be better than humans, but if we make them too transparent, then we're going to lose performance. Um, I think that's an attempt to answer your question. I, I do no, feel that's, like that's fair. You just used a phrase. Yeah. You said they're deterministic mostly. Which ones aren't deterministic? Well, there are type statistical models that emit probability distributions. So okay. that's what I mean. That okay, uh, what's enough. what's in this scene? It's not a dog or a cat. It's it's thirty percent dog, seventy percent cat. And right, but a, every a time property. you run that photo through, it's always the same. The the model's deterministic. Yes, yeah, so the, the the software machinery is deterministic. Okay. Yeah. Well, in the most part, there are models that emit statistical. Uh, they're, they're stochastic. But uh, you're right. right. I'm just trying to scratch my head. Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, I have I have taken all all of your time. It's been a fantastically interesting hour. Uh, I wish we had another one. And uh, you're you're clearly a very reflective person about all of these. And I thank you for sharing your reflections you. with us. I appreciate your time as well. It's very interesting questions. Great discussion. If you enjoyed this podcast, we recommend you also tune in to the AI podcast produced by our friends at Dell EMC and Intel using technology to solve some of the toughest challenges on the planet. The AI podcast is available online through iTunes, Google Play Music, and SoundCloud.